Welcome to Essential Dynamics. I'm Reed McCollum, your good-looking host. The hardest part of my job every week when we record these podcasts is playing that intro, which is called the Feel Good Blues. I just am really good at it, and uh, I am so glad that uh, it, it has made our theme song. I'm here with Essential Dynamics guru, Derek Hudson. Derek, how are you today? Reed, I'm fantastic. Uh, really glad you picked up the guitar in the past few months so that you could uh, compose and play that song. Well, you know how it, dedicated I am to you. Well, I, and I appreciate that too. This is, uh, I got to tell you, I'm super excited about this episode, Reed. I know you are, and I am too, because today we have a special guest, as has been our want in our new season, second season. We are having today uh, an occupational therapist uh, to ply her wares and her thoughts about essential dynamics. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to uh, Jade Bateman, whose uh, uh, maiden name was Hudson. Is there a clue there? Derek, can you introduce her a little better? Not a coincidence that, that Jade was born Jade Hudson because she's my daughter. Ah, and as you know, uh, for those of people who have listened to the first, um, first season of Essential Dynamics, from time to time, I use experiences that I had in my family uh, to relate to, uh, you know, things that, are, things that I've learned. And eventually, the, all my kids came up in the conversation. And um, I actually I quoted Jade in one of the episodes, except that Jade never told me these things. And so I felt like it was important for Jade to come defend herself and either correct what I said or elaborate on it. So I'm excited to have uh, Jade on. And one of the really interesting things about Jade is that when she was in grade nine, she decided that she was going to be an occupational therapist and work with autistic kids. And I think on an earlier episode, I said that when I was in junior high, the only people I knew who knew what they were going to be when they grew up were Reed McCallum and Bryn Griffiths. And Reed was going to be an actor and Bryn was going to be a radio announcer. And uh, the rest of us didn't have a clue. So Jade, you're in an elite group. The only people I can see on my screen right now are people who knew in grade nine what they were going to be when they wanted to grow up. So maybe Jade, first of all, tell us why you wanted at such an early age to be an occupational therapist when most people my age don't even know what it is. Yeah. So Slight correction. I think it was more like grade 11 when I knew I wanted to be an occupational therapist. I hadn't heard about it before then, but I knew at a pretty early age that I wanted to work with kids. Um, and I think by junior high, I knew I wanted to work with kids with, um, with different needs. Um, and so I, I think you're right in the by grade nine, I knew I wanted to work with kids with special needs part. But um, when I was uh, 16, I think, I was at a career night and someone I knew presented about being an occupational therapist and I'd never heard about it before. And that night it was like a lightning rod struck me and I was like, yep, that's it. I'm going to do that. And so I, um, I got my undergrad um, at the U of A. I majored in psychology and then I, I applied to OT school only at the U of A. and was lucky enough to get in. I didn't have a backup school. And uh, the first week of lectures, I'm sitting there and they're explaining what occupational therapy actually was. And I was like, oh, phew, okay, I'm glad I like this. I didn't actually really know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> but I love it. It's my, my dream job. I love how holistic it is. Um, and I just feel really blessed to be able to work 
with kids and, and teachers. Well, I think that there's a bunch of really lucky kids out there uh, and families that, where you make a difference. And, and you, you know, you, you are passionate and you talk about your work and, uh, and we learn from it. So what happened in our episode when we were talking about um, the people part of people, path, and purpose, and, uh, and this is what I, I said. I said, when I, what I think my daughter, Jade, the occupational therapist, would tell me about kids in schools, there are no kid problems. The kids are fine. It's the system and what we're expecting of the child in the situation, giving the capacity of the child and the interest of the child. So, Jade, uh, refute or confirm that you would have said that have I, had I asked you that question. Yeah, I think I would have said uh, essentially the same thing. Like, Sometimes, you know, kids are lacking skills and we can help remediate the skills that they're, they're lacking. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it's down to how can we create an environment where the child can be the most successful. So sometimes it's, um, you know, more structural things like they need a better chair to sit in or they need something to help them hold their pencil right. Um, but often it's more uh, intangible things. And usually it boils down to me, at least to relationship. And that's really what kids need to be successful in schools is, is relationship. And that can help overcome a lot of the obstacles that they face because of the, the structural systems that don't um, support their needs. So tell me a little bit more what with, when you talk about relationships, Mm -hmm. what are the key relationships that a, a, child in a school would, 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 what you'd want to be looking at, I guess. Yeah, so um, there's a, a lot of research over the last few decades, really, that's shown that the number one indicator for kids having a successful outcome, which is pretty vague, but like, you know, staying out of prison, getting a job, that kind of thing, like a successful outcome, is having one adult at the school that cares about them. So it doesn't even have to be the teacher. It can be the principal or the custodian or an educational assistant or whomever, but one adult in the school that cares about them. So ideally, kids would have multiple adults in the school that care about them. Um, But having a, a strong attachment relationship can really help overcome a lot of barriers. Jade, I'm wondering uh, if you work at a specific school or do you move around or do you have uh, tell me a little bit about your, your day? Yeah. Good question. So I um, consult to a handful of schools. It varies year to year. It's been as many as 10 and as few as five. Um, So it just kind of depends somewhat on our budget that year. Um, And then I, I get referrals for individual children based on teacher request and so if teachers are looking for support and the child meets my scope of practice um, then I get the referral if parents also consent so there's definitely some hoops that we have to jump through Um, excuse me but I work with kids with a a whole range of needs Um, so I'll try to keep the buzzwords to a minimum but it's basically um, as an occupational therapist, we think of occupation as anything meaningful that a person does. So it could be self-care, productivity, or leisure. And so for the 
the children and students in school, their occupation is to be a student. Um, so for me, that means their occupation is to play and learn and usually learn through play. Um, and so if they're having difficulty succeeding in an occupational performance area, um, like writing or sitting and listening in class or, um, you know, socially interacting with peers at recess or moving through the hallway. Um, there's a, it's a really, really big <laughs> area that I, that I can work with, but yeah, if a child's having a, a moderate to severe difficulty that's having an educational impact, um, there's a lot of constraints on what I can do again, because of budget, they've had to kind of tighten up what we're allowed to take. But, um, my passion is kids with trauma and behavioral challenges. Um, so that's, those are the kids that I, I see the most potential in, the ones I want to help the most. Um, yeah, sorry, that was a rambly answer, but did I, did I get to the, the point? Sure. I just wonder if uh, emotionally or uh, educationally challenged children are, uh, the, the norm now is to mainstream them. Is that correct? Um, so school divisions will do things differently. Some school divisions, um, they only have inclusive classrooms. And so um, kids are placed with their same age peers, regardless of, of educational need. And then other school divisions will have kind of specialized programs where you need to meet certain criteria to go to the program. Um, I think it's really important to have parent choice. I've I usually, you know, I'm team inclusion. I want kids to be able to access learning in their um, class, um, community classroom. But every once in a while, we have kids where they are just really struggling in an inclusive setting, despite everything we're throwing at them. And then we move them into it, or not we, but the parents decide to move them into a, a segregated setting and they just thrive. And I go, okay, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess it's not, like inclusion isn't for everyone. And so I think it's important that parents have the option to, to choose, but I like, I like kids and parents to at least have the choice to be able to succeed in, in an inclusive setting if possible. I like what you're saying because what I'm hearing is that there's no one set answer, but rather your answers are tailored to the child. Oh, a hundred percent. Okay. And, and that's one of the reasons you like your job, Jade, is because it's a puzzle every time. Mm -hmm. And there's a, uh, creative process of trying to figure out the, the strategies for the one child. Yeah. Uh, so I want to put this just in the bigger context for the, the discussions we generally have in essential dynamics that, you know, remember this did come from a, from a business approach. Um, and what we found was when you think about um, people being on a quest and that there's people path and a purpose that applies, you know, everywhere we look. Um, but one of the things that Reed and I talked about a number of episodes ago is this idea of middle managers and that people don't quit companies. They, they quit managers. So it really struck me when you said that the outcomes are best when a child has at least one attachment worthy relationship with an adult in the school. And I'm, I'm thinking that that's a principle that should be more broadly applied um, in all the organizations that we, that we deal with. I'm just wondering, Jade, if there's any um, particular 
situations you've seen where you've seen remarkable results when that started to happen? Yeah, um, there's definitely been a few. Um, I'm trying to think of what a good example would be. So I have, um, um, I'll try and keep things as vague as possible so no one can identify the kids I'm talking about. But um, I am supporting a student this year um, who I supported last year as well. And last year I tried to do um, a formal assessment with them to apply for funding. I only do formal assessments when I really have to and usually it's to apply for funding. And I've been working for seven and a half years now. I've been working with kids unpaid for my whole life. Um, so I'm really good at building rapport with kids. I'm good at getting them to work for me. And I had to pull out every single trick in my bag to get this kid to finish the assessment. He, he couldn't pay attention for longer than 20 seconds. It was, he was like a, a goldfish attention span wise. Like it was really hard to get him to focus. He was really... Um, out of sorts in the classroom all the time and then COVID hit and he had a lot of family stuff going on um, so his family was doing everything they could everything they could to try and help him keep learning during COVID but they just had way bigger things on their plate and so we just told them not really to worry about it so he lands in grade one after having um, had a pretty um, rough kindergarten year and his teacher sat him um, right at the front, right beside him, not so that she could nag him all day, but so that she could support him. So she would, um, his love language is clearly physical touch. She would put her hand on his desk and he would just like pet her hand while he listened to her. And because of COVID, her hands were really dry, right? Because she's like uh, washing her hands all the time. And so she had a little texture to her skin. So he would just pet her hand. And she checked in on him all the time, but she also believed in him. Like she challenged him. She held him to high expectations, uh, like expectations that were high for him, but fair. And with this combination of high expectations, safety to make mistakes, and just complete unconditional love, by the end of the year, like last time I checked in on him, he had written half a page on his HLAT. So this is a kid who in kindergarten was like making marks and couldn't pay attention enough to connect a letter to a letter sound. But that relationship with his teacher, he could sit and pay attention. He still has all the same other stuff going on. Like I think he still, you know, has attention concerns and his family is still experiencing some of the same challenges. But because of that relationship with the teacher that she didn't get frustrated with him, she wasn't impatient with him. She wasn't blaming him for things that weren't his fault. She saw him as he was and loved him as he was. And he has made so much growth that I honestly barely provided support this year because he didn't need it. That is beautiful, Jade. And I, I, it makes me feel bad for all the trouble I caused you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you, you made me feel a lot better about that. So is, is that the answer to everything, to every problem employee? Um, to me, it is. I mean, I'm a little biased. I've spent all my professional learning budget the last five years on learning about attachment relationships. <laughs> so I'm not, um, I'm not super neutral on the topic. Um, but I, when I've been thinking over the last few days about how I was going to apply um, my work experience to business community, which I don't really know much about other than the fact that my husband has his MBA um, and is, you know, works as a marketing professional, 
um, what I, what it boiled down to really was, um, was relationships. Like I, I was thinking about drivers cause I'm, I'm familiar with constraints as Hudson's. We see constraints wherever we go. I know dad, you've said before that we have this thing where you can't go to like a potluck or a buffet and, and not see how it could have been laid out in a better order to be more efficient. <laughs> My friends at work tease me all the time about how like I can always find a more efficient way to do it. Um, but I don't think about the drivers as much. And so when I was thinking about drivers and, and thinking about finding a child's driver and how that could apply um, in the workplace, really what it came down to um, was finding something that the child's interested in and using their interests as a motivator and relationships. I don't really believe in external motivators for kids. I think they work as a short-term solution, but if you use them too much, then they, um, they really suffocate your internal, your, like your intrinsic motivation. And so we'll use them short-term, um, but I, I never recommend them as a long-term solution. But what I do recommend is genuinely getting to know a child and finding out what they're interested in and then building those interests into their learning and then relationships. And so really that applies perfectly to, to workplaces is, you know, as much as you can give your employees work that's meaningful and interesting, and then they're going to be passionate about it and they're going to want to do their best and the relationships that if they have someone in management that shows that they care and holds them to a high expectation that as employees, we want to meet that expectation. Like people want to do well, people do well if we can. And so we need, we just need to have that support, that safety to make mistakes and the expectation to do well, and then we'll do well. So, uh, Jay, this is fantastic. Um, if occupational therapy ever kind of gets boring for you, <laughs> there's a huge new universe in management consulting for you. That because, would be really funny because um, my sister, dad's other daughter, Leisha, is a management consultant. And we would have come through it from about as opposite of roots as possible. Well, you know, and, and Jade um, and... Bryn, we have to make sure that we uh, get the episodes in order here because uh, Lindsay Osmond, who's a human resource professional, um, on the previous episode told us the same thing. And, and she said that the work that leaders have to do is to figure out what the people need and to set them up in an environment where they can be successful. So you, you didn't hear that. I didn't. <laughs> you came from a completely different um, set of professional training, completely different experience. And you've told us the same thing. And the biggest problem with it, the biggest problem with this whole thing is that it's work. It's individual. There's no cut and dried rules. And so as a manager or a teacher or a leader or a parent, whatever it is, you got to put the time in. But Jade, I, what I really heard from you that I really like is that we're looking for drivers. The drivers have to be intrinsic or they have to be based on intrinsic. Um, and so we're trying to find out what the interests are of the people. Um, and then you said the drivers are interests and relationships, but the relationship is how we figure out mm -hmm. what their interests are. Yeah. And I think the other thing though, is that the interests can change based on relationships or that they can be revealed. Uh, so 
in any organization, any group of people where we're trying to do something, when we have closer relationships and people can be more themselves um, and they're, and they're working towards a common cause, then that those uh, interests can come out. Uh, and I think that the beauty of working with children is that's all there ever is. Like they are always authentic. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At least the younger ones. They don't, they haven't learned how to game the system. Yeah. That must be a refreshing part of your work. Yeah. I love it. They just say exactly what's on their mind. <laughs> <laughs> so are there, so I, you know, I was thinking about this. Are there unmotivated kids? Are there kids that are just contrary or, you know, that, that, you know, can't, you can't find that inside them? Um, so I definitely work with some teachers who would say, yeah, there are unmotivated kids. I would fairly strongly disagree with them though. I think with the rare exception, um, I, I think every child, I get, I'm trying to figure out how to word it. So I think that every, every child wants to succeed. Every child wants to do their best, but a lot of children have, um, have reasons to be guarded. And so succeeding involves taking risks and it involves being vulnerable. And so, cause you, you're not, you're not going to do well all of the time. You're going to fail sometimes. And so that's really scary and that's really vulnerable. So a lot of children have experienced, um, trauma and, and not even necessarily, you know, kind of big T trauma, like, um, you know, the, we have a lot of, I work with a lot of students that are fleeing, um, you know, civil war and and stuff like that. And so like those students have big T trauma, but, um, and big T trauma is not a real thing. I'm just kind of making this up as I go. So if anyone's like Googling that, I'm just, just kind of trying to make a point. Um, But a, a lot of students have more kind of smaller trauma in that they don't have that safe attachment relationship at home. And so they don't have someone to shield them from the things that can harm them, like failing at school. And so if, Um, And so it's easier to just put guards up and to not be vulnerable. So a lot of kids have really thick defensive mechanisms in place. And so to the, to someone who doesn't have the background that I have, they might look at that child and see they're lazy, they're defiant, they're unmotivated, they don't want to do well, they just want to make me mad. um, And they take the staff can take it really personally. Um, but when I look at the child, instead of saying, you know, what's wrong with you, why aren't you motivated? I look at it as what happened to you. Like, why, um, why are you presenting like this? And the answer doesn't even really matter that much. The solution's usually the same, which is relationship. And so, um, I think it's kind of the same for adults where I think if, if adults are presenting like they're lazy and unmotivated, chances are they have a lot of guards up and they have some reasons why they're presenting that way. And so I think adults have more um, accountability to, to kind of work through that somewhat themselves and to 
be professional in the workplace because they're grownups, whereas I think kids have very little accountability for that. And it's our job as can you tell you with kids, I'm saying grownups instead of adults, but like it's our job as the big people to take care of them as the little people. Whereas in the workplace, I do think there's more accountability on employees to, to bring their best. But I think, I think in the workplace, not everyone has the capacity match for the job. Like if you put me in an accounting, like dead when you were articling at PW, when you were like, I would never be successful in that environment. Never. I'm a competent person. I would just fail hard. So I think that, that there is some um, capacity matching that has to happen. But if the capacity match is there, I think every adult has the potential to be successful if they work on the reasons why they're being motivated, but I think it really is important to have that, that person that cares and that helps them find their interests and that helps provide that safety to make mistakes. Again, long rambly answer, but did I get it? (laughs) Yeah, no, you totally did. And I I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go, but I had a feeling that there was going to be a direct connection between the work of occupational therapists and the work of managers and leaders. And I think we, I think we unearthed it today. So, Jade, thanks so much for uh, for get, putting it out there and being vulnerable today in terms of testing your work uh, with some grown-ups. And, <laughs> uh, so, so thanks very much. I'm sure I can't wait to have you over for dinner in our house. It's going to be soon. Yay, um, vaccines. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on your podcast, but yay, vaccines. No, no, we're, uh, we're, all, we're all shot up and uh, we're going to, be there all of us are going to be done number two here pretty quick uh so reed there we go how did we do you did great derek i'm really proud of your daughter who is clearly better than you that's the way it's supposed to be that's the way it's supposed to be yeah i really think that's wonderful jade bateman thank you very much for joining us derek hudson always a pleasure uh derek where can they find you DerekHudson.ca. it's a great place to find me Okay, I I, uh, I encourage every all of our listeners to go and uh, and break his server. Uh, I really appreciate being here. I'm Reed McCollum, and for Bring Griffiths in the studio, consider your quest. Mm-hmm.